we felt an imperative that uh, yeah. our constituents know that a Russian oligarch has purchased our election machinery. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why I came here. I got the feeling that something ain't right. That's why I've been here. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. For 15 years. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Seattle, Washington's KODX. Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI. Round Mountain, California's KKRN. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me... From bradblog.com, you may or may not agree. In any event, I'm glad you could join me today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, where we will be joined momentarily by our old friend and financial journalist, David Dayen. We, we haven't uh, spoken to him in months, uh, frankly. Uh, I know. Was, I think it was January last time we talked. It's high time. Time flies, don't it? Um, Whether you're having fun or not. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and, of course, that is, speaking of not having fun, that's Desi Doyen, <laughs> our producer. Uh, we'll talk to uh, David Dayen about several different topics, including a disturbing new announcement this week from Donald Trump's Treasury Department that will now make corporate millionaire and billionaire dark money in our elections even darker. Which, uh, oddly enough, right-wing groups are very delighted about all of that this week. And uh, we'll also talk to David about some fascinating races uh, along the Democratic Party's progressive establishment split. Um, one, a remarkable development over the weekend out here in California in the U.S. Senate race. Uh, the other in um in Kansas, which is not much thought of as a progressive state, but where Bernie Sanders and New York's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are teaming up this weekend to campaign for several progressive U.S. House candidates in advance of that state's August 7 primary, where early voting begins today. Uh, so if you're listening from Kansas, please do vote. Uh, I look forward to speaking to David Dan about all of all of that shortly. But before we get there, uh, a number of uh, points I want to try to fit in here. James Comey, 
the lifelong Republican former FBI director who many Democrats blame for what happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016 and who Donald Trump hates. He fired him because he was investigating the alleged conspiracy between Team Trump and Russia. James Comey posted a pretty remarkable tweet on Tuesday night amidst all this madness in the wake of the Trump Putin summit in Helsinki on Monday. And I got to tell you, I got I have a pretty difficult time disagreeing with Comey's tweet here, even as you know, I am no great fan of the Democratic Party. Uh, Comey tweeted last night, this Republican Congress has proven incapable of fulfilling the founders design that ambition must counteract ambition. All who believe in this country's values must vote for Democrats this fall. Policy differences don't matter right now. History has its eyes on us. Kind of difficult to disagree with that uh, thought from lifelong Republican James Comey. Well, of course, you have said this before. So basically, James Comey agrees with you. Thank you. That's right. <laughs> I'm sure he's a listener. Of course, uh, that's not all that different from the case that I have, in fact, been making about how to respond this November to our ongoing, uh, frankly, worsening national emergency under Donald Trump and this Republican Congress who still appear unwilling to do anything to put any checks or balances on this insane White House. But with all of this talk of late of uh, interference by foreign countries in our 2016 presidential elections, concern that it will happen again in 2018, and uh, all of this talk about so much of the stuff that we have been warning about on this show, on the Bradcast, and for so many years at Bradblog.com about the fragility and vulnerabilities of our electoral systems, which now suddenly Democrats, at least, seem to have become concerned about and are finally calling for action on, even if their action is kind of misguided. But I, I received this tweet recently from Joanne Boyer, a regular listener who tweets and blogs as Wisdom Voices up in Minnesota. She said... So, the Brad blog, talking to me on Twitter. So, the Brad blog, how does it feel when the rest of the world is slowly catching up to what you've been broadcasting for decades? She includes hashtag paper ballots, hashtag handmarked paper ballots, hashtag hand counted. Well, Joanne, uh, not quite as good as you would think. Uh, as I responded to her on uh, on Twitter, I uh, said, uh, given what it has taken to get us even this far, it does not feel quite as good, not quite as swell as you might think. In fact, it feels terrible. Makes me wish I could have done more, though, uh, frankly, I don't know how I could have. She responded to say no one could have done more than you. And if we ever get to hashtag paper ballots, they should build a memorial to you. As my mother used to say, your reward will be great in heaven there is no voting there. Love you for all you do. <laughs> At least there's no voting there. Yeah, but um, I'm not dead yet, Joanne. Let's not uh, set up that memorial. Uh, although by the time this nation finally rests our elections from the private corporate control and return it to one of full transparency and public oversight. Yeah, well, maybe I will be dead by then. Anyway, if you look at Mueller's indictment of... Um, 12 Russian military intelligence officials on Friday uh, on 12 
uh, or 11 different felony charges related to interference with our our elections. Of course, these are only indictments. They're not convictions, but they're very detailed allegations. Uh, if you look at those among, you know, if you scrape away all of the other details and the noise, what you get is a Russian military intelligence agency leased server space in Arizona and a computer in Illinois. The Russian military used screenshots and keystroke capture to monitor dozens of D, uh, DCCC and DNC employees as they typed. The Russian military allegedly extracted opposition research on Republican candidates in bulk from the DNC as part of a multi-gigabyte hack. Uh, Two of the officers uh, named here in this indictment conspired to hack into the computers of U.S. persons and entities responsible, responsible for the administration of 2016 U.S. elections, such as state boards, boards of elections, secretaries of state, U.S. companies that supplied software and other technology related to the administration of U.S. elections. U.S. companies that supplied software and other technology related to the administration of U.S. elections. Why are U.S. companies... Companies, private companies supplying software and other technology related to the administration of U.S. elections in the first place? That's a question I've been asking for a very long time. And um, they, yes, pulled it off, as Axios notes, in or around July 2016. Um, two of these, uh, <clears throat> well, one of the Russian military officers and his co-conspirators hacked the website of an unnamed state board of elections that's believed to be Illinois and stole information related to approximately half a million voters, including names, addresses, partial Social Security numbers, dates of birth, driver's license numbers. Everything. Nothing was protected. At least nothing was sufficiently protected. The Friday indictment was significant because its scope went far beyond propaganda efforts and into a physical attack on America's state-by-state machinery of democracy. Axios notes, this wasn't an attempt. The Russians actually succeeded in some of their incursions at least according to the indictment. The attack was more sophisticated and involved vastly more resources than most U.S. politicians realized. The Russians hacked an election vendor that supplied supplied software used to verify voter registration information and then spoofed the vendor's email address to spearfish Florida election workers in numerous counties containing malware embedded into Microsoft Word documents that were implanted on the systems. The hackers breached the state election offices uh, in Illinois. An unnamed uh, registered state lobbyist and online source of political news, whoever that was, we're left to wonder, accepted two and a half gigs of data that was stolen from the DCCC. And this catches my eye from the indictment. Uh, The indictment reads that during the hacking of the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and DNC networks, the conspirators covered their tracks by intentionally deleting logs and computer files. For example, on or about May 13, 2016, the conspirators cleared the event logs from a DNC computer on or about 
June 20, 2016, the conspirators deleted logs from uh, a panel that documented their activities on that panel, including the log in history. That, of course, is what many of us have been warning about when it comes to claims by private electronic voting companies and election officials that if there's any chicanery on our computerized voting and tabulation systems, we can always go back and check things like audit logs on those machines that are required on those machines, despite the fact that as computer security and voting systems experts have long warned and we've reported over the years, those logs themselves can be very easily deleted by a bad guy who intrudes on the system. They can be deleted or they can be changed by anyone who manipulates that system in the first place. So what good are those so-called audit logs? Answer, very little. Uh, and yet that has been the line of defense that many election officials and voting system companies have pointed to over all of these years. Well, we have audit logs. If anybody tries to get into the systems, we'll be able to go back and see that. Well, no, we won't. Uh, the audit logs are very difficult to get at at all for the public, for public oversight. But as we have learned, they can be deleted. They can be changed by the people who are in the system causing havoc. And then there's this that we learned uh, since the uh, since the Friday indictment. The FBI has informed Maryland officials that the state's voter registration system and other online systems operate on a software platform owned by a Russian financed firm. There is no evidence that there has been any breach or fraud in voter registration or voting, election officials said to WBAL-TV in Maryland. Senate, uh, Maryland Senate President Mike Miller said the elections coming up in November are going to be fair and everything is going to work the way it's supposed to. Of course, he has no idea if that's the case because they depend on private contractors to run our public elections. Miller said nobody knew the background of this company. Nobody knew it was a Russian. Apparently, he was informed about this by the FBI just on, uh, I think it was Friday of last week. Lawmakers said they did not know the company was backed by a Russian oligarch said to be close to Vladimir Putin until the FBI informed them. This is a company that they contracted and yet they didn't bother to, uh, you know, do a background check, a security check before they signed up with this company to manage all all kinds of elements here. Uh, the Maryland State Board of Elections said in their statement uh, that the FBI gave this office important information about a vendor the State Board of Election uses to host various election systems. The vendor is named ByteGrid LLC, and they host the statewide voter registration the uh, candidacy uh, database, the election management system, that's the programming for the ballots and the tabulation of those ballots. They also host the online voter registration system, online ballot delivery system, and unofficial election night website results. This is all hosted by a company which apparently is owned by some guy in Russia 
And I have nothing against some guy in Russia. I don't know who he is. I'm not suggesting he's a bad guy. What I'm suggesting is what the hell is he or any private vendor doing in our public elections? And how can it be that public officials who contracted these vendors have no idea? According to the FBI, uh, ByteGrid LLC uh, is financed by Altpoint Capital Partners, who fund, whose uh, fund manager is a Russian. Its largest investor is a Russian oligarch, oligarch named Vladimir Potanin. Uh, and this is a $7.6 million contract. The Maryland State Board of Elections is now working with the attorney general's office in the state to review the contract with the company before determining how to move forward. All of this uh, just underscores what many of us election integrity folks have been trying to warn about for so many years. The dangers of privatizing our public elections. We have I've been talking about that for more than a decade. You can go to Bradblog.com, read uh, uh, reports from uh, VotersUnite.org that they tried to get attention to about 10 years ago on that very issue, the, the privatization of our public elections. Uh, these systems, not just the ones in Maryland, but they are all in all 50 states. They are owned by private companies. Even if we used computers for all of these things in uh, in our elections, but at least they were systems that were created and designed and run by public officials, we would have some chance at least at public oversight. Maybe the public would have figured this out because apparently this wasn't of concern to the to the state of Maryland. Such as it is, we have to wait for the FBI to come in years later and say, hey, you know what, y'all might want to do something about that foreign uh, national who owns every aspect of what used to be your public election system. As Frank Heindel, a longtime Republican businessman from South Carolina, he's been working on this issue for years. He's a Republican. Uh, we had him on the show last week um, after he filed a lawsuit to get rid of South Carolina's 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems made by a company named ESNS, which is the nation's largest voting machine company, a private company. They refused to show up for hearings last week in the U.S. Senate or answer questions about basic cybersecurity sent to them over the past year by uh, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden. Uh, we've got another story uh, on them that I hope to get to later this week. But uh, Frank Heindel, the Republican from South Carolina, told me on Friday... You need a system where the winner knows that he won and the loser knows that he lost, and everybody knows that their votes were cast and counted correctly. And we don't have that today. No, we don't have that today. We don't have that today, and we don't know if our votes were cast and counted correctly in the 2016 presidential election, which had the uh, greatest surprise ending, at least for many, that the world has ever seen. And we have no idea to this day whether Donald Trump actually won that election. The solution, the solution remains the same that we have uh, said for so many years of oversight, public oversight, 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 oversight by the public. That's what will save democracy if it can be saved. So perhaps that's why Republicans in particular continue to do everything they can to keep the public from having that public oversight. 
Let's take a short break here, and we will uh, come back to speak with financial journalist David Dayan about the remarkable new announcement from the Treasury Department this week regarding dark money in politics, where we will now have less oversight. And while he's here, we'll talk to David about both the remarkable developments in the Feinstein de Leon U.S. Senate race here in California over the weekend and Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's trip to Kansas this weekend in advance of that state's August primary. All of that and more ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, uh, as I have long argued and continue today, public oversight, as I see it, remains the only way to even possibly counter the manipulation of our elections, whether it's foreign nations like Russia or any other including any Americans or election uh, American election officials manipulating our computerized voting, voter registration and vote counting systems, or the growing flood of so-called dark money from millionaires, billionaires and corporations that continues to corrupt our electoral democracy under what the U.S. Supreme Court has deemed to be free speech, which, as you may have noticed, certain very wealthy people have a hell of a lot more free speech than paupers like you and I. Uh, Anyway, that situation is, if you can imagine it, that dark money situation, about to become even worse after a change in IRS regulations announced by the Treasury Department this week. According to Reuters, the U.S. Treasury Department has announced that it will no longer require certain tax-exempt organizations, including politically active nonprofit groups like the National Rifle Association or Planned Parenthood, to identify their financial donors to U.S. tax authorities. The policy change, heralded by and lobbied for by so-called conservatives as an advance for free speech, applies to 501c4 dark money groups, but maintains donor disclosure requirements for traditional charities 
organized to receive tax-exempt donations under the 501c3 IRS code. According to maplight.org, which tries to track where dark money contributions come from and where they are spent by these so-called social welfare organizations like the NRA, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Koch Brothers Americans for Prosperity, among others, Maplight reports that the nonprofits, which are already known as dark money organizations because their donors' names aren't, in, aren't disclosed to the public, have become high-profile players in U.S. campaigns by virtue of their ability to funnel unlimited amounts of anonymously donated cash into elections and other political contests. But before the IRS announcement this week, the nonprofits were required to disclose the names of donors at least to the government. And, of course, whenever journalists requested 990s from such groups, sometimes they actually got them and they were able to see who was funding these groups. Brendan Fisher, director of federal reform at the Campaign Legal Center, said the disclosure requirement was one of the few ways that the government could identify illegal foreign money in elections. Today, he says, that requirement is gone. Dark money just got a lot darker. To give you an idea, uh, dark money groups uh, spent more than $43 million on the 2016 presidential election. They spent roughly $70 million in just the top 10 Senate races that same year, according to the Center for Responsive Politics. The biggest dark money spenders included the National Rifle Association with $35 million, U.S. Chamber of Commerce with almost $30 million, and Americans for Prosperity with some $13 million. A copy of the uh, IRS uh, Schedule B form known as the 990 which until this week was required to list the names of donors to these groups. Uh, a copy of the 990 for the Koch's uh, Americans for Prosperity group was obtained by Maplight in April of this year, showing that that nonprofit, Americans for Prosperity, which bills itself as a grassroots conservative organization, actually received Almost $49 million uh, in one gift from a single source. That source was the Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce, which has been described as the Koch Brothers' secret bank. Maplight also used the Schedule B form to report that a single $28.5 million donation accounted for nearly 90% of the money that was raised by a group called the Wellspring Committee back in 2017, um, the uh, organization is the primary funder of the Judicial Crisis Network, which spent heavily to thwart President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the U.S. Supreme Court and supported Trump's uh, nominee, Neil Gorsuch. The chances of Americans learning exactly who is controlling their electoral democracy just got much darker, apparently. Joining us to discuss this and some actually encouraging campaign news, I think, for progressives in California and even, yes, in Kansas, is financial journalist and a longtime friend of the show, David Dayan. He's a contributing columnist at The Intercept, The L.A. Times. He's now a fellow at In These Times magazine. 
He's the winner of the Studs and Ida Turkle Prize and author of the critically acclaimed Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. David Dayen, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Always a pleasure to be on. Thanks. I know you have been uh, covering uh, the somewhat remarkable news out of the California Democratic Party uh, convention over the past weekend uh, concerning Senator Dianne Feinstein and her challenger, Kevin DeLeon. We'll get to that in a moment, as well as Bernie Sanders teaming up with fellow progressive and Democratic Socialist uh, New York congressional candidate Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Kansas. I want to get to both stories, but first, your uh, general takeaway from the Treasury Department's announcement this week that dark money will now be getting even darker. Right. So I, you can sort of squint and say, well, this is just a, a, a change because uh, it, I, I guess what Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said is that this isn't necessary information to process these tax returns. And anyway, uh, any organization, whether it's uh, the Chamber of Commerce or Planned Parenthood or, or on the left or on the right, can, can sort of uh, benefit from this. But let, let's be real. The, the practitioners of dark money are overwhelmingly on the right. And uh, that's why politicians on the right support burying this information, whereas politicians on the left generally support disclosure. And so it's very clear what's being done here. Uh, these groups that sometimes represent corporations that don't want their name attached to uh, right-wing campaigns use this loophole in the law, this ability to conceal their identity, to help the side that's going to get them giant tax breaks and deregulation to win elections. And uh, this is just another method that they can use to do so. They are, uh, of course, Treasury Department is saying that uh, the Form 990 and the Schedule B information that was previously open to public inspection will continue to be open. Uh, in other words, the amounts of the donations will be made available under the uh, disclosure rules for these 990s. But under the previous rules, the names uh, were redacted anyway before the disclosure of the documents by the government. So uh, ultimately, is there uh, really much of a difference here in your work as a, you know, as a journalist who I you know, suspect has sometimes relied on these forms? Um, well, is there any difference? I mean, you just listed several uh, examples of uh, individual donations and their attachments to these kinds of dark money groups getting out. And uh, it's just going to be harder for, for journalists or uh, public interest organizations to get their hands on that information now. Uh, you know, whether or not uh, this, the, the, the information will come out sort of in, the, in the same, a similar fashion in a public sense, uh, there was this ability to access this one way or another uh, by, you know, watchdogs that were trying to, you know, spread light on uh, money and politics. And that is 
more closed off today than it was yesterday. And I, I should note here that uh, that information, uh, that the government at least had uh, access to that information and those names. And uh, I don't know if it's a telling or not here. The Treasury made this change this week after the uh, Department of Justice indicted uh, right. this uh, Russian uh, Maria Butina who had infiltrated the NRA and uh, the NRA was receiving all of this foreign money that I guess the government doesn't want to know about anymore. Right. I mean, it does seem that the government is hindering itself. Uh, as far as I know, foreign uh, spending within U.S. elections remains illegal, uh, whether the IRS collects this information or not. And it seems like they're giving themselves less of an opportunity to connect the dots and make sure they are properly enforcing federal election law. Uh, but it, again, this is not surprising because the group that's currently in power uh, doesn't want uh, a spotlight shined on that. Yeah. Uh, because uh, not just because of the last election, but because of the history uh, over the last decade or more of exploiting the uh, ability to hide your identity uh, if you're a big donor and and spend money on these races. Uh, they they they. they thrive on it, and so why wouldn't they want to keep it secret? And I think it may be a feature, not a bug, that even the government uh, won't be able to know some of this information. Uh, Before we get to a break here, I gotta say, I don't know if, David, I don't know if you had time to see the uh, Treasury Department's actual announcement on this, Um, but uh, they had something that I I see as completely fake news, literally, uh, in the announcement. Uh, They write that uh, conservative tax-exempt groups were disproportionately impacted by improper screening in the previous administration, including what the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration concluded were inappropriate inquiries related to donors, and they referenced the political targeting scandal under the Obama administration. Uh, David, there has been information that came out since that original IG's report in which Congress had asked the IG to look at specifically were conservative, so-called conservative groups targeted. Uh, IG came back and said yes, but then we went on to learn that all groups were targeted by the IRS, not specifically uh, right-wing groups. Uh, I'm trying to watch my language here, but uh, it seems to me to include that stuff in an official press release from the Treasury Department is, let's just say, BS. <laughs> yeah, uh, fake news, you could call it, and you can yep. also call it the thing that we used to call it uh, in the blogosphere, which is zombie lives. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if these things are discredited, uh, uh, if, if Study after study shows that, in fact, nobody, no, no particular ideological organization was targeted more than another. Uh, as long as it was said once, you can refer back to it endlessly in a loop. Uh, this, is, this is how we heard about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. This mm. is how we heard about uh, uh, the estate tax hurting farmers. Uh, it is just these zombie lies that perpetuate over and over and over again. And uh, you're, you're, you're so hard, you spend so much time def- trying to deflect that 
that zombie lie that uh, you know nobody ends up knowing what the truth is. And how much are uh, would you uh, put the blame on Democrats and media uh, for this kind of thing? Because you know they went round the clock for months and months on this so-called IRS scandal. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it was definitely yeah. overhyped. Um, you know, there's one sense in that if if one side is shameless enough, they'll just refer back to it in in perpetuity. And it's almost like a game of whack-a-mole to try to uh, get uh, to to get organizations to to media organizations to bat down the lie. But but when the other Very side different. when when the other side of that equation came out and it was found that oh progressive groups were targeted in in the same way, you didn't see twenty four seven from the progressive Absolutely. media not and the even, Democrats. Not even a peep. And and you know one thing about this is this is how. You know, the demonization of the IRS, which has been built in not just for the last couple years, but over decades and decades on the right, this is how this operates. Mm. It, it necessarily makes it difficult for the IRS to do its job, because when the right gets power, they, they, they have this built-in skepticism mm. of the IRS's you know, ability to, to collect taxes at all. And so they're going to make it hard on this organization. And so uh, denying them resources and information that they can use to do their job is par for the course. They're, they're literally throwing sand in the gears of the IRS at every opportunity, and this is just another example. Of that. It's another example that's sort of uh, slipping into the ether of everything else, and nobody's yeah. even noticing this. All right, David, uh, let's take a quick break here, and I want to come back to discuss your reporting on the Feinstein de Leon race in California and the Sanders Ocasio Cortez barnstorming in Kansas this week. Maybe. Maybe we'll find some better news there as we barrel towards the crucial 2018 midterm elections. Quick break, and we are back with more uh, more David Day. And right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I got to Kansas City on a Friday By Saturday I learned a thing or two Cause up to then I didn't have an idea of what the modern world was coming to. Bernie Sanders will be in Kansas City this Friday. He may learn a thing or two. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Before we get to Kansas, I'm speaking with financial journalist David Dayan, who spent the weekend covering the rather remarkable development at the California Democratic Party meeting in Oakland where the uh, state Democrats declined to endorse the candidacy of longtime 82-year-old four-term Democratic U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, voting instead to endorse 
her Democratic rival on the general election ballot this November, Kevin DeLeon. As Dan reported at The Intercept earlier this week, longtime California Senator Dianne Feinstein lost the California Democratic Party's endorsement in a stunning vote. On Saturday night at the party's executive board meeting in Oakland, though the vote was expected to be close, State Senator Kevin DeLeon rather easily crossed the 60 percent threshold necessary for endorsement, securing 65 percent of the vote among the 333 uh, member executive board. Feinstein garnered just 7 percent to DeLeon's 65 and uh, no endorsement took 28 percent. Wow. Uh, David uh, Feinstein easily defeated uh, De Leon in the state's top two primary in June, but not uh, not with amongst inside, uh, not inside the uh, the party itself. Um, we put to the uh, top two finishers of any party. Uh, now on to the general election ballot. So I've got two questions on this point. One, what explains the party insiders going big time for De Leon over their long-serving U.S. senator? And two, wh- what should we make of what appears to be a pretty big disconnect between state voters and the state party itself? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, there's a few things here. The first you have to recognize that Dianne Feinstein's relationship with the California Democratic Party has always been a little bit strained. You can go back to 1990 when uh, she spoke at a state party convention and came out in favor of the death penalty and was roundly booed. Uh, and then she used that, that footage of, the, of her being booed in her ads mm. to show how independent she was. So wow. she has thrived on keeping her distance from the party, and I think at this point it's now caught up to her. The other thing is that this executive board is really uh, a a microcosm of uh, the shift to the left in California, and particularly in the activist circles of California. Uh, This reflects people who got involved after the Dean campaign, after the Obama campaign, and to a smaller extent after the Sanders campaign. These are people who uh, do the work, who are, 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 you know, who stuff envelopes and, and make calls, and, and, and this is sort of the, the heartbeat of the party. And it's kind of the only thing in California where you can do actual retail campaigning. I mean, we have 19 million voters, mm-hmm. but you can, you can talk to 300 people, right? Mm. You can talk to, to smaller groups of people. And, and Delion just had better relationships with these people. These are people who worked tirelessly for the party and said, you know, I've spent 10, 15 years involved in this, and I've never met Dianne Feinstein. Uh, and yet Kevin DeLeon comes to my meetings, and he, mm. he, he works with me on legislation that he's passed at the state level. So, uh, it, you know, it wasn't that surprising. I guess the, the, the numbers were pretty surprising. Uh, you know, uh, in the final weeks of this, Feinstein said that she didn't want the endorsement, that she wanted the party to give no endorsement, as as she called it, a show of party unity. Because she knew she uh, wasn't going to win, because she knew yeah, she wasn't going to get that endorsement. Win, so yeah. She was kind of deflecting, right? Um, uh, and that's why you get this huge discrepancy, but she couldn't even stop uh, that 60% threshold. Uh, as far as what this means for the race, this was a key thing uh, for, for DeLeon. Uh, you know, 
Feinstein has kind of sucked all the oxygen out of his campaign. She's been, uh, through surrogates, has essentially uh, threatened donors of his, mm. saying if, if you give him money, you'll never kind of never work in this town again. You'll, 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 you know, you'll never get anything from me mm. or the people who are on my side, which represent most of the major politicians in the state, people like Gavin Newsom, who's going to be governor, and, and, and Kamala Harris, who's going to be senator, uh, who is senator. Um, so he needed this. For legitimacy, he, uh, De Leon needed this for, to, to show that his campaign was viable. They spent very little money in the first round of the primary, just enough to get into the top two. That's one reason why it was such a discrepancy. Feinstein got forty-four percent, De Leon got twelve percent. Right. Um, he 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 did the bare minimum of what you had to do to get into the second round, and and he's made the case that the second round is a whole new ball game. And getting the endorsement is an example of the fact that it is indeed a whole new ballgame. Uh, Feinstein's not going to be able to duck debates now. This is the, the, the Democratic-endorsed candidate. Mm. She's, she's, she's going to have to debate him. Uh, it, he, it might be a little easier for him to get money. The uh, Labor Federation in California has endorsed him. So he might be able to get labor money now, which would be big for his campaign, like an independent expenditure. Uh, so it makes it more of a, a viable race now, whereas uh, if he didn't get this endorsement, he wouldn't have had a moment to change that narrative. It, it, uh, two, two points I want to ask you on this uh, before we move to uh, Bernie in Kansas. Um, you sort of cite his uh, Kevin De Leon's personal relationship with the uh, with the folks on the state Democratic board, uh, but uh, but you don't know. To, uh, you, you, well, you haven't mentioned uh, his progressive politics. Is there a substantive difference uh, between Feinstein and uh, De Leon uh, as far as politics go? Sure, it, how much how much of of the uh, endorsement is due to that? There absolutely is a substantive difference, and I think that has a lot to do with what you saw over the weekend. Uh, De Leon is coming off this stretch where he co-authored the net neutrality bill that we're going to see in California pass into law. Uh, his bill on sanctuary states was upheld by the, the, the federal district court. That's another bill he wrote. Uh, uh, he's, he's had a really interesting and, and, and positive run in terms of bringing forward progressive policies uh, that have actually made a tangible difference. And Dianne Feinstein, as we know, uh, has a history of uh, defying the party on the Iraq War, on the Bush tax cuts, which she voted for, uh, on the Employee Free Choice Act, which she resisted, uh, and eventually that did not pass. Uh, yes. DeLeon absolutely is a more reliable progressive on a lot of the issues that members of that executive board care about, and that certainly played a big role. And yet you note that uh, he is still, DeLeon is still lagging pretty far behind Feinstein in the polls, at least yeah. as of now. Will a Feinstein victory in November, if that happens, and it wouldn't be a surprise, do you see that as further dividing the so-called progressive and establishment wings of the party? Well, uh, I think the progressive wing is pretty united. I mean, 65% going against an incumbent 26-year senator uh, to say that we, we want uh, a brighter future. And I, I think there's a generational aspect to this as well. 
that it's not necessarily progressive versus establishment. People were coming out of the woodwork saying that the, the Bernie bros have taken over the Democratic Party. Uh, Kevin DeLeon uh, campaigned for and endorsed Hillary Clinton in uh, the primaries in California. Mm. This is much more generational. Mm. It's about future versus past. It's about not uh, wanting to wait around for uh, you know the, the the old guard to to finally get uh, uh, finish their run. Uh, this this is about a different style of leadership. And uh, I think DeLeon uh, represents that to a greater degree than Dianne Feinstein. And, of course, one of the things that I think people are nervous about with Feinstein is that she'll be 85 years old at the beginning of this term, and uh, the rumors are rampant that she won't finish it out Mm. because she'll pass on, you know, she'll retire, uh, essentially, during uh, her her next six-year run and pass on to a hand-picked successor, uh, the 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 incumbency, mm. which uh, would would then be used to you know win win a, uh, a another six year term on their own right, so that's uh, I, I think there's a, a sense within the state party that we want to actually have a role in who succeeds Diane Feinstein rather than having her pick it herself. All right, speaking of uh, generational uh, change here and of the progressive and establishment wings of the Democratic Party, uh, early voting is now, as of today, underway in the great state of Kansas before its August 7th primary. You've got a very detailed report at The Intercept today uh, that begins this way. After defying the odds in the Bronx and Queens, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is hitting the road in her first campaign trip to another congressional district since her June 26 primary victory. Ocasio-Cortez will join Bernie Sanders for rallies this Friday in Kansas. <laughs> Kansas? Uh, yes, Kansas. I'm happy to see uh, these uh, two progressive uh, Democratic socialists teaming up, but their first appearance together is in what is thought to be the very conservative state of Kansas, David Dayan? Yeah, that's uh, the case. And uh, I think Kansas is an interesting opportunity for for Democrats this time around. And and one reason is that uh, the state has essentially been just demolished by Sam Brownback Mm -hmm. and his excessive uh, tax cut for the rich policies. It's almost like the, the Trump tax cuts in miniature We've seen what they look like in Kansas, and they look horrible. The, the state Supreme Court three times in the last two years has told Kansas that your public education spending is unconstitutionally low. Uh, and, and, and conservative Republicans have actually reversed some of the brownback tax cuts mm-hmm. in the state legislature, overriding a veto from brownback on that. So there is a lot of distaste for this slash-and-burn, austerity, and tax-cut-based policy. And so you're starting to see progressive candidates really push back against that and run against that in, in Kansas. And, and the race, I, the main race I profile, is uh, this guy named Brent Welder, who is, uh, he, he, he worked for uh, both Bernie Sanders and Obama and Kerry before him, uh, he's 37 years old. He uh, was a lawyer, labor lawyer for the Teamsters Union, uh, organized uh, working families through that, 
and is running on a very bold platform, Medicare for all, $15 an hour minimum wage, free to tuition-free college, uh, and getting money out of politics. He actually authored the platform uh, amendment in the, the Democratic platform two years ago to encourage no corporate money in elections, and he's not taken any corporate PAC money, which he was one of the first uh, Democratic candidates to make that pledge, and now over 140 Democratic candidates nationwide have made the same pledge. So uh, Ocasio-Cortez and, and Sanders are rallying for, for him, and at the same time, uh, there's, it's a six-candidate field. One of the other candidates, this woman named Cherise Davids, is the beneficiary of a $400,000 ad buy from Emily's List Super PAC. So it's, it's almost like showing the, the big money as mm. sort of uh, within the race uh, as, as, as you know, Brent Welder kind of runs against it. Now, uh, David is a pretty, you know, I, I spoke with her. She mm-hmm. was a compelling candidate. She would be the one of the first ever Native American women ever in Congress. Uh, she's she's running on a fairly progressive platform, not quite as much as Welder. Uh, one concern is that the two of them would kind of split the vote on the progressive side of the party, allowing one of the more moderate candidates mm. to uh, sneak into winning the primary. So it's a really kind of an interesting field, and it, it's it's. An example and almost a test case for the progressive democratic socialist brand of politics and whether it can win in a swing state. This is a state Hillary Clinton won, by the way, this district. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of the only districts that Hillary won the general election and Bernie won the primary. Um, and it's, it's a test to see if politics can play in the heartland. Uh, yeah, and the test of those progressive politics has been questioned by uh, a lot uh, a lot of the establishment uh, folks. You note that uh, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth uh, recently rebuffed the appeal of democratic socialism outside of the coasts. Uh, she said, I don't think you can go too far to the left and still win the Midwest. Minority leader Nancy Pelosi made a similar argument after Ocasio-Cortez's victory in New York. Does either group have the data yet to back up their argument that I know Bernie is uh, and Alexandria are trying to make in Kansas, or is that what we learn in uh, August seven and as these other primaries go forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something we'll learn. Uh, but let's just say there's this massive progressive history in Kansas. I mean, Kansas uh, in its uh, you know it was founded by abolitionists who were mm-hmm. fighting uh, white supremacy. Uh, it. Uh, was the, uh, one of the homes of populism back at the turn of the last century. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt gave this, this great speech about populism at Owasatomi, Kansas, and actually a hundred years later, in the wake of Occupy Wall Street, uh, Barack Obama went to the same city to give uh, a, a similar speech. Mm on why inequality was such a challenging moment for uh, the, the, the society at large. Uh, there is still, you know, remnants of this populism in Kansas, I feel, or at least that's the argument that Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez and Brent Welder are making. I mean, Brent Welder said to me, you know, people say that progressives can't win in Kansas, and, and I say that progressive policies are the only way 
that you can win in Kansas. The idea is that you have to make you have to make the case that you're you're going to make a tangible difference in people's lives, not through incrementalism, but through really offering uh, an agenda that lifts them up and 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 makes a difference. We are. Uh, I will point folks to your uh, report at the Intercept on uh, Ocasio Cortez and Sanders trying to prove their case in Kansas, as you describe it. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, I've got. Uh, this is totally unfair, David. You are the most prolific man in uh, progressive media. I think. Uh, you have a huge, detailed, investigative report that we don't have time to cover uh, that you published recently at Huffington Post's Highline Long Read outfit on uh, on sexual harassment at banking powerhouse HSBC. It's totally unfair because it's a really long and detailed story, but give me the quick pitch to your long read, and I'll be sure to link folks over to it when I post the show at bradblog.com tonight. You got it. So this is something I've been working on for about a year and a half, and it's a story of a guy named Mike Piccarella, who's a Wall Street veteran. He goes to HSBC. He encounters uh, and witnesses the sexual harassment of a junior colleague, and he goes to Human Resources to report this, and he's essentially blackballed at the company. He's retaliated against. He's uh, put into a situation where he reports to a, a, someone who has a lesser title than him, which is almost unprecedented on Wall Street. And uh, he endures a years-long saga of dealing with this, uh, retaliated against just for you know speaking out and being a whistleblower. And it really is a story that sort of takes you into what it's like to be a whistleblower and how uh, large organizations sort of uh, build a process to isolate you, to alienate you, and to muster you out of the company. And uh, there's a lot to it, but that's the general gist of it, that this guy stood up for a female colleague that he thought was being wronged, and it turned out ruining his life. So uh, that's the story. Again, it's at the Huffington Post Highline, and I deeply encourage uh, the readers to uh, check it out. I will point folks over there. It's uh, headlined Inhuman Resources. David Dayan, uh, always uh, great to have you here. I want to also point folks towards your Twitter feed, which is D Dayan, and of course to your personal page where they can try to keep up with everything you do, DavidDayan.tumblr. Dot com. Uh, greatly appreciate you joining us today, David. Hope to do it again in the not-too-distant future. Okay, thanks for having me. You bet. Okay, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And I hope you will find and follow and uh, share what we do here on the Facebooks and the Twitters. At both places, you can find me as simply the Brad Blog. And before we go... My thanks to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to support our work here. We rely on you and only you. Otherwise, we couldn't badmouth all of these corporations and everybody who we uh, who we try to badmouth on a regular basis. So we do rely on uh, your support at bradblog.com slash donate, whether it's a one-time donation or 
even easier. Sign up for a monthly automated subscription of any amount you like, and you'll never have to think about it again. You'll just keep supporting the Bradcast. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.